To you, O Lord, I call. You are my rock. Do not turn a deaf ear to me. For if you remain silent, I will be like those who go down to the pit. Hear my cry for mercy as I call to you for help. I lift up my hands toward your most holy place. Do not drag me away with the wicked, with those who do evil, with those who speak cordially with their neighbors, but harbor malice in their hearts. Repay them for their deeds and for their evil work. Repay them for what their hands have done and bring back on them what they deserve. Because they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord and what his hands have done, he will tear them down and never build them up again. Praise be to the Lord, for he has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and he helps me. My heart leaps for joy, and with my song I praise him. Those are the first seven verses of Psalm 28, which along with Psalm 26 are the psalms appointed for today, Tuesday, December the 6th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks so much for being along today. I appreciate you being here. We're going to look today at... Um, continue to look at the uh, prophecy of Amos, the seventh chapter, verses 10 to 17, in the book of the Revelation, chapter 1, verses 9 to 16, and then in Matthew's gospel, the 22nd chapter, the 34th through the the 46th verses. So in Amos, remember yesterday that he had prophesied against the nation to do with the plumb line, that God was going to set up a plumb line, and everything that wasn't plumb, he was going to judge because there's a standard by which it could be judged. So he says that this is going to come on the land. It's going to come on the king, Jeroboam II. So Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, the worship, one of the worship places that had been set up in the northern kingdom, sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. The lad can't bear all his words, for this is what Amos is saying. Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. So the priest is telling the king that we've got to get rid of this guy. He's a pestilence and a plague. He's coming up here to our place, and he's prophesying against you. And so he wants the king to act in this matter. But then he's, he goes ahead, the priest does, and says to Amos, Get out, you seer. Seer, S-E-E-R, go back to the land of Judah, earn your bread there, and do your prophesying there. Don't prophesy anymore at Bethel, because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. In other words, he says, don't come up here meddling in our affairs. You properly belong down there to that southern kingdom, those people down in Judah. You belong down there. You need to get back down there. Leave us alone anymore. Don't prophesy anymore up here. And Amos answered Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet. I I, I don't have any prophetic credentials. Don't call me a seer, and don't call me even a prophet, because I was not a prophet, nor was I a son of a prophet. I was a shepherd, and I took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now then, hear the word of the Lord. And so what he's saying is, is that I don't have any choice. God laid this burden and this responsibility on, on me to come up here and give you all a word to call you to repentance. And the reason for that would be there's nobody up here doing it. You would be the perfect object lesson. You, the priest, who are not doing anything against these blasphemies and the apostasies of the people. God had to send somebody from down there up here to give you this word because nobody here will give it. <clears throat> 
So you say, don't prophesy against Israel and speak, stop preaching against the descendants of Isaac. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Your wife will become a prostitute in the city, and your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be measured and divided up, and you yourself will die in a pagan country, and Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. I don't know that, that the word against Amaziah could have been any more potent. Right? I mean, this is what's going to happen to you. This is None of this is good. Your wife's going to become a prostitute. Your sons and daughters are going to fall by the sword. You're going to die in a pagan country, and the whole nation is going to go into exile away from the land. You're going to lose everything. It's a horrible, horrible word, but, but it's the Lord speaking because the priest has a responsibility to lead the nation in prayer. It has the responsibility to lead the nation in worship, which means they've got to lead in truth. If there's, if there's something that's set up that goes against that truth, then they have a responsibility to the Lord to deal with that, just as the king has a responsibility in that same way. And so the, the, the harsh prophecy of Amos against Amaziah and against Jeroboam has everything in the world to do with their leadership. It has to do with, the, as the leaders go, so go the people. And so the judgment's going to be harsher on those who lead the people astray and who don't call the people back to repentance. In the gospel lesson, remember Jesus had just had that silly conversation with the Sadducees yesterday about the resurrection and, and the woman who had been married to seven brothers and whose wife will she be. Now that hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. So it's, okay, so it's our turn. Let's come up, cook up something we can uh, bring against him and see if we can trick him because he, well, he shot down the Sadducees. So let's, let's give it a shot. So one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And certainly it does sum up everything about the first commandment, but it's coming, he's quoting from Deuteronomy here, Deuteronomy 6. Um, after the Shema, the Lord your God is one, then you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And so Jesus says that's the first commandment, and it absolutely is the first commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself, and all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And so what he does is is that he condenses the Ten Commandments down to these two things, your responsibility to God and your responsibility to your neighbor. In both cases, it's the same thing. It's love. And so what he's done is, is that he has summarized those two things. But why should those two things be the first and great first and second great commandments, and how is the second like the first? What's like the first? Because God gave those commandments, but it's also like the first because in loving your neighbor as yourself, you're not just loving God, which is your primary obligation, but your secondary obligation is to love those who are created in his image. And those are the neighbors of which he speaks here. These, so everybody who's around us is our neighbor, and we're, our, our responsibility is to love those people. And so our neighbor, is, as he will tell later in the parable of the Good Samaritan, is anybody who needs us to be neighborly, whether we know him or not, because we're not told anything about the person in the parable of the Good Samaritan. We only know the one who did the good things, the neighborly person, was the, good, was the Samaritan who was good to the man. But we don't know anything about the man. We don't know if the man's Jewish. We don't know if he's not Jewish. We don't have any earthly idea who he is. Jesus doesn't bother to give us a single detail about that man's life. And so the point was that, that that person needed a neighbor, 
And so the Samaritan is the one who was the neighbor. <laughs> And so when we do that, then, then we're called outside of our comfort zones to, to recognize the, the image of God in those who are around us. And therefore, that we're called to love them as we love ourselves, which means um, that we've got first to love ourselves. But, and we should, because Jesus loved us enough to die for us. God loved us enough to send his Son to die for us. So we know of that love, and so now we're called to extend that love to our neighbors because Jesus extended that love to unlovable people like us. And so whether our neighbors are lovable or unlovable doesn't ultimately make any difference. We're called to love them, period. End of sentence. Because I'm not particularly lovable, but Jesus loved me and loves me to this day and will love me to the end. And so we're called to love in the same way that Jesus loved, beginning with the love for God, which is the love that impelled him to come at the Father's will. He wanted to please the Father. So he came to do what would please the Father. But in doing so, he did it for love of the world as well, because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. So it's all about love. It's about loving the Father and loving those who are created in the Father's image. Those are the two basic ways that we're, we're intended to navigate life. And if we then fall back on him and say, what's the loving thing? You know, I, he, he's already answered the question of who's my neighbor. Now, what does love mean? And how do I love in any circumstance? Because it's not always the same the way we do that. And so while the Pharisees were gathered together, though, since you're all here, let me ask you a question. The, um, who do you think... What about the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said, well, it's the son of David. I mean, certainly that's the scriptural response, right? I mean, that's exactly what he's going to be hailed as, is the son of David. And Jesus said, so, okay, then how is it that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? Speaking by the Spirit means is, is when I read this in, in Scripture. And if I read it in Scripture, then he's speaking by the Spirit, so Jesus is going to quote Scripture, and that's the way he's that that's the way he gets at this David speaking in the Spirit because it's Scripture. So it's the Word of God. So he's speaking by the Spirit. And David says, "The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet." If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? And the argument here that Jesus is making is is that he is greater than David. Because the son of David is always less than David. Those who came first in time are always considered to be superior to those who come later in time. So whenever a rabbi, for instance, is going to teach something, he's going to quote a rabbi who came before in order to teach and go from that teaching forward. And so here, that's the argument Jesus is making. And he's making the argument that he'll make in other places, which is that I preceded him in time and space. So he's not technically David's son in the sense of being somebody who's a successor in interest to David. He is the predecessor in interest to David. He, and no one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So Jesus authenticates what David says by appealing to the fact that he speaks in the Spirit because, well, that's the only way it could possibly be in Scripture, is that if it were God's ideas— that were being expressed there. And so, so he says, you've got to rethink this. You've got to rethink the way you think about the Messiah, that it's not an earthly king who is going to come later. It's somebody who actually pre, pre, uh, is the predecessor of David, not a successor of David. 
it's something that we always have to keep in mind is what is it that God's actually saying and what is it that he's actually doing? And we have to pay attention to the words. In the book of the Revelation, John says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In other words, he is on Patmos rather than somewhere else because he's been put there in exile because of what he was preaching. Because of his testimony concerning Jesus, he had been put into exile on the island of Patmos, lest he, that, so that they're essentially they're um, uh, keeping the virus of that gospel testimony. They're keeping it in check by putting it out here on the island of Patmos rather than putting John to death. He says, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which is, would be, as I've said a million times about this word trumpet, it, the, the Old Testament idea of what that is would have been the ram's horn, right? It would have been the shofar. And so what he hears is that, which is exactly the voice that they say they hear on Mount Sinai. They hear this voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll that you, what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking with me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. So these seven golden lampstands are the seven lampstands of the churches. So that's where he is. He's writing to the churches among whose lampstands he stands. Someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest, which authenticates him as royalty. So the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance, which is exactly what James and John and Peter saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, was this, this shining in all its brilliance like the sun, as opposed to the shining face of Moses after he met with God, which would have been the shining like the moon in reflecting the glory of God in whose presence he had just been. And so John sees the one who is writing, he was telling John to write his message to the churches. He sees him standing there in glory as the Lord of those seven churches. And he has the authority then to speak these words, which is the sharp double-edged sword, which is the sword that, that you don't just hack and slash with, you pierce, you stab with that sword. It just is the writer of Hebrews says that it pierces to the vision of joints and marrow. And so this is a hard word that's going to come, but it's a word that's based and is the word of God. And so the prophecy is true. And trustworthy, and therefore it's it's not a pleasant thing. But remember, this book ultimately becomes the judgment of God on the world, the final judgment. But where does that judgment begin? It begins right here with the judgment that Jesus is getting ready to speak against the churches. It begins there, and it spreads then out into the world. We're held responsible first for what we've done with what we've been given.